0: Hey guys, you're listening to Murder in the Mountains, and I'm your host, Karina Maynard. For this week's episode, we're sticking around West Virginia again because I was asked if I would like to do an episode on this story by someone who had all of the resources I could ever ask for when it comes to researching a case. So, of course, I was really, really intrigued. I wish I could give every single detail, but I'm going to leave out some names of officers and lawyers due to not having any permission to use them. I didn't ask these people if I could use their names, but they're much busier with larger scale things than what I'm doing. (laughs) While I was going through this case, I was able to read some pretty Crazy things. And some of these things I'm going to post on the Murder in the Mountains Facebook page for you to see as well. So be sure to check that out. And with that being said, let's travel back in time. It's February 5th, 2001. What would seem like a quiet, normal night for the majority of people would soon turn into a tragic morning for a small community and the Limble family. 44-year-old Brenda Limble of Unita, West Virginia, had seemingly been in a car accident about three miles from her home. Police were dispatched at 2 a.m. that morning to an area locally known as Produce Curve on Route 85 in Boone County, West Virginia. EMTs alerted police that Brenda had died on the scene after removal from her vehicle. The officer that arrived on the scene determined that the injuries Brenda had sustained were not consistent with the damage to her car, the positioning, or the location. Another officer who was at the scene recognized Brenda and knew where she lived, so he provided the address to a couple state troopers so they could go to the home to notify anyone who was there. Upon arrival, the troopers noticed blood spatters in the driveway, on the sidewalk, and on the front porch of Brenda's residence. Additionally, a bloody glove was found on the porch near some of the blood spatter, along with what seemed to be muscle or brain tissue. A very gruesome scene, I would assume. I mean, I could only imagine. When the officers knocked on the door, Brenda's daughter, 16-year-old Morgan Linville, answered. Police asked Morgan if she knew where her mother was, and she claimed that her mother had sold drugs the night before and hadn't come home. Morgan's claims were included in a five-page written statement. At this time, Brenda's cousin, Joanne Lowry, and her sister-in-law, Patty Price, arrived at the residence. Joanne is not just a cousin to Brenda. She's more of a sister, a best friend. So much so that in Brenda's will, she stated that Joanne is to take care of Morgan if anything were to happen to her before Morgan was of legal age to take care of herself. And Morgan called Joanne Aunt Jo. Now, you would have to trust someone with everything in you to leave the responsibility of your child, you know, with this person should something happen to you. So, that should tell you that these two women were very close. Now, it's time for the officers to break the news of Brenda's passing to Morgan and Joanne. They have to tell Morgan and Joanne that this was no accident this has been a homicide. Joanne wants to go inside because Morgan is visibly upset and at some point she actually ends up vomiting but police will not allow Joanne inside because the home is now considered a crime scene. Once things have calmed down a little bit, Morgan, Joanne, and Patty are about to leave but Morgan has a request. She asks the officers to look for her mother's safety deposit box, which has her life insurance policy inside. Patty drives Joanne and Morgan to her house, and Morgan talks to Joanne in the back seat about how she will need this life insurance policy so she can get a car so she'll be able to drive herself around. A family member recalls Brenda having bought a car for Morgan at some point, but the insurance was just too high and she was unable to drive it because she could not get it insured. While at Patty's, Morgan makes a phone call, but whispers, and she's covering her face to muffle her voice. This call is to Paul Greenleaf. Police are looking for his car, and Morgan tells him to get rid of it as soon as possible. Well, I wonder why. We're about to find out. Later that morning, an officer calls Patty's house and asks if Morgan is still there. He needs to bring her in for a little bit more questioning. He comes to the home and picks Morgan and Joanne up, and Morgan asks if she can ride up front. While on the way to the state police department, Morgan definitely does not seem too concerned that her mother was murdered, I mean, earlier in the story, she was crying, she was so upset, and she vomited, and now she is asking questions about which knob does what and which button does what in the police cruiser. But Morgan was asked to give another statement, and based on this one and her actions, it's obvious that some things are just not adding up, and the officer suspects that she knows more than what she's letting on. This officer consults with others and gets consent from Joanne since she is now Morgan's legal guardian to get a recorded statement. He reads her her Miranda rights and lets Morgan know that she's being questioned about the murder of her mother. He lets her know that she can leave at any time, she doesn't have to answer any questions, she has the right to an attorney, etc., etc. And he does this with the help of a form. And as he's reading these things off, Morgan is initialing beside each one. And he also tells her that she is not under arrest at this time. So Morgan knows that she does not have to answer anything. She does not have to say anything. But she chooses to give a statement anyway. In her recorded statement, Morgan gave new information on what happened the night prior. The beginning of her interview began with the justification for the killing of her mother. Like, this 16-year-old girl is admitting to the murder of her own mother. She says that her mother called her a fat, ugly whore and said that she wished she had aborted her. Morgan claims that her mother was abusive, but there's no evidence of abuse. Once she starts to confess, Morgan then starts to deny any responsibility for the killing things changed throughout her story like how and when her mother received her injuries first she said that her boyfriend paul greenleaf a 19 year old boy from canal county became angry and agitated and accidentally struck brenda during this argument that she and morgan were having She said this happened at the area which she and her car were found after she voluntarily accompanied them there. Then she said that her boyfriend Paul struck Brenda while Morgan was not home. Finally, she said Paul hit Brenda while Morgan was in another room. Her participation, or lack thereof, also changed throughout her statement. It's like she was ready to confess and then was like, oh shit, what did I just do? So a lot of the blame was placed on Paul. Two more statements were taken and after the final one Morgan was placed under arrest. While Morgan was being questioned Joanne sat in the lobby and waited until Morgan sent out a note. This note told her to go on home she would be okay. Now let's talk about Paul for a minute. We haven't really gotten to discuss him yet. We've just heard his name mentioned. So Paul Greenleaf was 19 years old and from Kanawha County, West Virginia. He met Morgan in an online chat room. Gosh, this is back in 2001. Keep in mind, I think chat rooms are still a thing. Maybe, are they? I'm not sure. They met in person and they hit it off. A local paper states that he got her a job working at Hickory Farms in the Canal Mall in Charleston during the holiday season with him. So, the Canal Mall has been closed down for a long time now. It's actually turned into just a bunch of little, like, storefront things. I don't really know how to describe it. But my mom used to go there whenever she was a kid and a teenager. And she said that it was, like, the place to be. Anyway, he would pick her up for work and drop her off and he even met Brenda who Morgan said really liked Paul. He was super into Morgan and she acted as though she was super interested in him as well. Most nights after Brenda went to bed, Morgan would sneak out to see Paul and they were even engaged to be married after she was to graduate that June. They had been together for, I think I read, around two months or maybe a little less, maybe a little more, before they committed their heinous crime. So, of course, since Paul is connected to the crime, he is arrested as well. His mother describes him as more of a loner and said that she was the first person that he called from jail. He was worried that she would hate him, and he was especially worried about what his four-year-old sister would think. He didn't have a lot of friends, and he spent a lot of his time working on computers and hanging out with Morgan. He had been homeschooled since moving back to West Virginia from Maryland in the ninth grade. I mean, up until now, he seemed like a pretty normal kid. Now let's go over the actual crime that took place. Within this case there is a lot of he said she said between Morgan and Paul. What exactly happened? According to Morgan at a hearing in 2002 Paul sneaked into her room that night after they had earlier discussed how to make it look like Brenda had an accident. Morgan says you know I have a plan. Let's do this. I have a plan. As you know Brenda was found in her car, and further investigation pointed to homicide, not accident. Nothing matched up. The police were skeptical. It just didn't make any sense. Brenda had been beaten over the head with a blunt object at her home while she was in bed. Oh my gosh. Like, I, I could not imagine, you know, doing this to someone, let alone my own mother. The weapon that was used was a two-by-four that Morgan retrieved from Paul's car. Morgan struck Brenda and called for Paul to come help her. He says that he was in another room playing with her new puppy named Baby. Once in the room, he says that it's kind of dark, he can't really see, but he sees Morgan holding a towel over Brenda's face and a board is laying up against the wall up by the headboard. Morgan turns around and asks Paul to grab the board and hit Brenda. He starts to do it, but he hesitates. He says, you know, I, I can't do this. Morgan says, if you love me, you'll help me. We have to do this. I have to do this. So she is using his feelings for her against him. She's manipulating him here. Paul says that he turned to walk away, but again, Morgan insists that if he loves her, he will do it. And he says, you know, he did love her, so he helped. She tells him to think of all the times her mother has hit her or yelled at her. But in other statements, Paul says that he's never seen Brenda hit her. He's never seen Brenda do half of the things that Morgan has accused her of. The only thing that he has seen is them kind of get into a little spat here and there, but he describes it as nothing more than, you know, normal mother-daughter tension, and if they were ever arguing before he showed up, as soon as he walked into the door, they, you know, said their piece and went on about their day. So, he swings the board a few times, and at one point, he's not even sure if he hit her, and he says that he doesn't think that he hit her very hard, but he may have. They wrapped her in a sheet or blanket to carry her outside, and they end up dropping her on the porch. So they put her into a wheelbarrow, which doesn't work out for them either. They carry her the rest of the way, and according to someone else in the family, Morgan has possibly said that while they were carrying her mother the blanket or sheet fell off of her face and she looked up at Morgan. Oh my gosh, I could not. I can just picture it in my head and it's just, it is so awful. They carried her the rest of the way and they were able to put her into Paul's Camaro. Now, this is fucked up too. Paul says that they put Brenda's body in the front seat of his fucking car. Like normally in these stories, You hear of people putting, you know, dead bodies in the trunk. They put it in the fucking front seat. Can you imagine him just driving down the road with his girlfriend's dead mother in the passenger seat? What the hell? Morgan followed in her mother's car. And they pulled over at a church not too far down the road. And Morgan put Brenda's shoes on her. On the wrong feet. Jesus Christ. She got back into Brenda's car and she and Paul met at Produce Curve on Route 85 and put Brenda into her own car and make it look like she had been driving. Then they pushed her car over the hillside where Brenda's car struck a tree. Morgan then proceeded to climb into the car and beat the windshield with a piece of wood to shatter it and make it look like Brenda had hit her head on it. Now, I'm not gonna lie... That was a little bit smart on her part, just because this whole scheme has been so fucking dumb from the start. Like, that's the smartest thing that she's done, I guess, so far. Paul says that after they left, Morgan decides that they should go back and burn the car. So they turn around and they go back. Morgan is searching in the car for something to use because Paul says, well, I don't have anything to set this thing on fire Morgan like what are we supposed to do well she finds some matches in his console and he finds a piece of cardboard in the back they get back to Brenda's car and someone else pulls in right before they can do anything cannot even light a match so Paul and Morgan they speed off they get the hell out of there they do not want caught Paul drops Morgan back off at home to clean up the mess, and he disposes of the bloody bedclothes by throwing them out on the side of the road, on the side of Corridor G, on his way back home to Charleston. According to a witness statement, the witness and her boyfriend were passing by as Morgan and Paul fled the scene, and they noticed taillights of another car shining at an angle like it was, you know, tipped up in the air. They pulled over to check things out and saw what they assumed was an accident. Boy, were they wrong. They thought that the Camaro that had pulled out, which was Morgan and Paul, were going to go find help or call 911. Obviously, that is not the case. But they didn't know that at the time. The witness and her boyfriend go to the car and the radio is so loud that they can't hear each other. They turn it down and lean Brenda back and notice blood on her, but nowhere else in the car. The witness believed that the car was in neutral, so that makes things a little fishy, too. Like, if she was driving her car, it would have been in drive, and when she wrecked, it would have still been in, well, you know, drive. They flag down a coal miner, and they check her pulse, but they can't find one. The miner uses his CB radio to call out and have someone else call 911. This was just a very poorly acted out thing. I mean, murder is awful, period, but this whole scheme was just a mess. Like, these kids are fucking stupid. Okay, I think it's time that we take an ad break, and then we'll be right back. This is an ad for Jamie's shopping cart. Jamie's Shopping cart is an online Facebook group created by one of my good friends, Whitney Workman. She sells everything from women's clothes, children's clothes, boutique clothes, car freshies. Let me tell you, I got a car freshie from Whitney the other day, And it smelled just like maple syrup. It smelled so good. My whole car smelled like pancakes with syrup. It was so nice. I loved it. Definitely check it out if you can. And maybe even shop her link on Shopify where she has so much more to offer. I don't think that you'll be disappointed. Once again, that's Jamie's Shopping Cart. Jamie spelled J-A-Y-M-E-E apostrophe S. Jamie's Shopping Cart by Whitney Workman. The two teens were charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy. Morgan remained detained during all of this, but here is something so crazy. Paul was released from jail on a $150,000 bond until his sentencing. So he had a job working for Hudson's Pizza in Charleston. Literally out and about just delivering pizzas for like a little under a year. Maybe a little over a year. Awaiting his sentencing for the murder of his girlfriend's mother. So he he's out delivering pepperoni pizza. While Morgan is in jail. Like, I do not know what happened here. Our justice system is so... I'm just going to say weird. That's, that's what I'm going to say. A plea agreement was made at the request of Joanne Lowry. Morgan was sentenced to life with mercy and one to five years for conspiracy on June 17, 2002. During her sentencing, Joanne spoke on the behalf of family and friends. According to the Coal Valley News, this is what she said. I loved them both dearly. This is hard to say, but I can't forget that Brenda had to lay on the floor and watch her daughter kill her. I went to the hospital when Morgan was born. All Brenda ever wanted was a better life for Morgan than what she had. Now, I want to take this time to really show how, you know, immature and childlike Morgan was at this time. Like Keep in mind, she was 16 when she murdered her mom. Morgan had requested at some point that a cousin of hers grab some things from her house and keep them for her until she gets out of prison, if she ever gets out. Some of these things include two boxes of Pokemon cards, purses, prom photos, bathing suits, and makeup. Like, I don't think that at 16 years old, Morgan realized the severity of what happened. And Paul has even said in certain statements that he thinks that Morgan thought, well, I'm 16. Paul is considered an adult. He'll be tried as an adult. I'll be tried as a juvenile if I get caught. But if I can pin it all on him, I will. But I will get out sooner than him but that's definitely not the case each person spent about 20 years in prison before they got out paul was sentenced to life with mercy but they are both out of prison they're out they got out on parole joanne lowry and patty price as well as many others still honor brenda to this day Joanne and Patty actually went on to become volunteers for the Boone County Crime Victims Organization. They made it their mission to help other victims and went to court with them to be their support. They also held blood drives in Brenda's name during National Crime Victim Rights Week since she was a frequent donor. The reason Morgan killed her mother isn't fully known She speaks of abuse, but according to some people who knew her, it was maybe just because she wanted to run away and find her father, who Brenda never talked to her about, never told her his name. Nobody knew who he was. Others say it was to use the insurance money and run off with her boyfriend, Paul. But on the Sunday before the murder, Morgan had expressed to Joanne that she was going to break up with Paul. Oh, shit. So, okay, let's pause. Pause, pause. Morgan <laughs> planned to have Paul be her accomplice, murder her mother, and then break up with him the next day. Oh, my God. Moving on. I, ca- I cannot even deal. There are letters from previous boyfriends that state Morgan also asked them to help kill her mother. And a family member recalls a time when Morgan tried to poison her mother by putting bleach in her drink. I'm pretty sure that I read that this actually put Brenda in the hospital for a little while. For me, well, I think that Morgan wanted the life insurance policy money because that seemed to be her main concern throughout this whole thing. Even while she was very first incarcerated, she was talking about it. She called a relative and told her that there was a $16,000 policy that she was aware of. I don't know why. Maybe she did want to run away and she thought that $16,000 was enough to flee and never be found. But that would just be another example of just how childish this girl was when she thought That she was a grown adult and she could make her own decisions and she could do this and that and whatever. And, I mean, she was tried as an adult. So, she got her wish. She was treated as an adult. Why did Morgan want her mother dead so badly? I don't know. The only person who really knows why Morgan killed her mother is Morgan herself. To close us out, I would just like to read a piece of something that Joanne had written about this whole experience um just coming from her point of view I know I have to put some closure to this but not a day goes by that I don't think about Brenda I'll never forget her and I'll never understand how Morgan could take away someone that loved her so much and was so proud of her that she was going to be graduating she wanted Morgan to have a better life than she did She didn't like the idea of Morgan dating, but she really liked Paul. She trusted Morgan with Paul. Little did she know that the two of them together would take her life and mess up their own for many, many years. All right, guys, that's all I have for you this week. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. I really, truly enjoyed researching this and, you know, going through the newspaper articles and the court documents that I was able to get my hands on. It was so much fun. This, it was literally like my dream podcast. Everything readily available, like, oh, it was beautiful. Love it. Love that. I hope that this happens to me again someday, somehow, but we'll see. Don't forget to check out the Murder in the Mountains Facebook page for some cool stuff that I'm going to post to go along with this story. I can't wait to see you guys next week. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet, but I have something in mind. So you'll just have to wait and find out.